Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined again with Dr. Michael Decker on May 23rd, 2021. An episode was published with Dr. Decker where he joined the show, and we had a conversation about the founding of Constantinople. In today's episode, Dr. Decker is back on the show And we're going to have a conversation about the Sasanian Empire's hegemony in the Mediterranean Basin. Dr. Decker is Associate Professor of History at the United Arab Emirates University based in the UAE. He has written many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. He's author of the book, The Byzantine Art of War, which was published by Westholm Publishing. And he's also author of the forthcoming book, The Sasanian Empire at War, Persia, Rome, and the Rise of Islam, 224-651, which will be published by Westholm Publishing as well, and is scheduled for release this year, so 2021. Welcome back on the show, Michael. Thank you very much, Andrew. Nice to see you again. Great to see you as well, Michael. What was the Sasanian Empire? So the Sasanian Empire is a state that... uh, really centered on the region of Iran, the Iranian plateau, and uh, central, this, the region of Mesopotamia, and it's stretched into Central Asia as well. So it's a, a dynasty that is ethnically uh, Persian at its heart. So it, it viewed itself in some ways as the successor of the great Iranian empire of the Achaemenids, which of course was uh, the empire that was fought with and destroyed by Alexander the Great. So the Sasanians, in some ways, viewed themselves as the heir to that empire. Uh, In this case, their antagonists most of the time were the Romans. How do scholars largely know about the Sasanian Empire? Yeah, that's a tough one because we're really in a difficult situation when it comes to understanding the Sasanians. So we have a few bodies of evidence. By far, in a way, the most prominent is the evidence from what the Romans say about the Sasanians. And of course, that brings a whole bunch of problems with it because the Sasanians were great rivals to the Romans and they contested the frontier regions for the Romans in the east So in Mesopotamia, especially in Armenia and the Caucasus regions. And so they were frequently, not always, but they were frequently in conflict with one another. So the the Romans have obviously very specific views about who the Persians are, who they thought they were, and um, their place in the world. There's obviously, because the Sasanians were very culturally similar in many ways, to many of the Caucasian peoples like the Armenians. The Armenians developed a literary culture in late antiquity, and there are Armenian writings that describe some of the workings of Sasanian life. And there are a few inscriptions in Pahlavi, in the Persian language of the day that survive. Very few texts, very few Pahlavi texts that survive from actually within the, the region of the empire. So uh, we, we have a dearth of sources. That, that's a big problem for us. The, um, the amount of um, texts that haven't survived, whatever that number, you know, and, you know, and, you know, is, um, it's a hard thing to obviously measure. Um, what, why do you speculate that, there isn't as much writings that's available to scholars from the from from their um, from their perspective. Is it a case where it's believed that a lot of the writings really just have not survived or have not been been found for for whatever whatever reason? Or in this period of time, were they writing? Were they not writing as much about let's say historical? accounts or contemporary narratives of what's what's occurring, but perhaps we're writing about different matters? Well, I think that we have the situation in Persia. There are probably a couple things at work here. It is likely that there was 
a little bit less writing going on in, say, the Persian Empire than in the Roman world, so in the Mediterranean generally. And I say that because obviously the Romans had a, a very developed bureaucratic form of government. So they demanded a, a large number of scribal types to keep the, the government functioning. And their reach into the provinces was actually quite deep. And so you had, you know, obviously not a not a huge proportion of the population in the Roman world were literate, but there were there were still a fair number of literate people. Uh, in the Sasanian Empire, it's unclear how uh, deep the bureaucracy and centralized government spread into the countryside. And so we're probably dealing proportionally with a, a lower percentage of people who were literate. That could be one thing. It's also true that unlike the Romans, the Persians did not survive. Their, the Sasanians did not survive the Arab conquests. So obviously, while the Romans do survive this great initial uh, Arab conquests of the 7th and early 8th centuries, the, the Sasanian Persians do not. And so it seems that there's you know, not only crisis within Persian society trying to explain the conquests, but there's also a process of Arabization, which for a time renders Persian a language that is secondary to the administrative apparatus and to the objectives that the new Islamic government has. And so that definitely affects the survival of Persian material. We know that there were substantial writings. We know, for example, there's a tradition of the Book of Kings, so-called, which detailed the deeds and the the histories of the Sasanian dynasty. We know there were translations made from Greek into Pahlavi, which is Middle Persian. It's the language of the Sasanian Empire. And also there was a large number of people within the Sasanian Empire who didn't speak Persian, but who were Aramaic speakers. And of course, they were part of a broad group of, of Aramaic speakers that crossed the boundaries of both empires and in some ways united culturally the regions of the Roman Near East and the Persian worlds. So, and they would have written in things like Syriac. So there were multiple communities producing texts at the time. It just seems that part of it is due to the political downfall of the Sasanian regime, why we have so little information about that. Again, we know that stories survive and stories circulate and they, they tend to revive, be revived or be found much, much later. Uh, the textual tradition, too, of the religious of religious nature were also written down uh, late in the Sasanian period and also in the early Islamic period, too. So um, it, it does seem politics have a lot to do with this lack of survival of many Sasanian sources. The, uh, the, the word Sasanian, and then I also have come across the word um, Sassanid, uh, what's the, um, is there a difference between those two words or are they, or are they synonyms and what's, what's the, um, what's the etymology or, or origin of the word, uh, Sasanian? Right. So the Sassanid, Sasanian, it is, it is a, a synonym, the words are synonyms. Uh, the word Sasan comes from the ancestor of the founder of the founder of the dynasty. So uh, the Ardashir is the founder of the Sasanian kingly dynasty, and he supposedly was descended from a man named Sasan. Now, the identity and the exact relationship with uh, between this historical figure Ardashir, the king, the first king, and this ancestor, Sasan, it's not quite clear, you know, whether he was a biological father, an adoptive father. It's not in the sources don't allow us to really know for sure. So that's where the word comes from. That's where the name of the dynasty comes from. And they come from the southern portion of the Iranian plateau in what's today southern Iran in the province of Fars, which is on the, the shores of the, of the Arabian Gulf or the Persian Gulf. You mentioned they spoke uh, Persian language. So do, do scholars consider themselves, or, or rather, do scholars consider them to be a Persian empire? You also mentioned um, that uh, they, they had a, 
uh, I don't know what the the you know the 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 best term for it is, but a uh, a desire to uh, establish a dynasty like the Achaemenid Empire that came before them. So, did they still did they consider themselves as well to be a Persian Empire? Yeah, I think they did consider themselves to be a Persian Empire. So certainly the identifying marks there are the use of Persian language and the prominence of Persian noble families. Now, I won't, there's there's a debate about a couple of these key items. One of the things you mentioned and we talked about, or I, I introduced a few minutes ago, was the nature of Sasanian, the Sasanian relationship, or in their thought world anyway, with the Achaemenid dynasty that came obviously much, much earlier that was destroyed by Alexander the Great in the fourth century BCE. Uh, so the there it used to be thought that the Sasanians did have a kind of working knowledge, let's say, of the Achaemenids and, and knew something of their history. That has been challenged, uh, but it does seem that there, you know, the, the, so the depth or the degree to which the Sasanians knew about and modeled themselves on people like Darius and Xerxes, the great uh, Achaemenid kings, is still a matter of, of open, is open to debate. The, the question of, about Persian, the Persian nature of the empire, I would say that certainly the character of the elite and the aristocracy is absolutely Persian. And obviously that's expressed in part by Persian language, but it's also for a long period of the empire's history related to Zoroastrian religion. And now as time goes by and as Christianity makes inroads within Persia, that becomes that tie between Persianness, if you will, and religion becomes, it seems, a little bit weaker. But the Persian kings themselves really never, they never backed away from being sponsors of the Zoroastrian religion. So I think those were two key elements of identity. Of course, as I mentioned, this is a huge empire. At its height, it, it really goes from the uh, Oxus River region, down through Afghanistan, as far east as the Indus River. And of course, the the number of groups and ethnicities within this huge territorial mass in the West included people like the Armenians, uh, the Azeri ancestors in Azerbaijan, and other Caucasian peoples. So there, there is a huge diversity, of course, in this territorial entity. But at the top, among the courtiers and the military officials and the uh, the elites, it is a Persian identity. Okay, so let's let's um, go to their hegemony in the in the Mediterranean basin at one point in time. Uh, can you can you describe? Um, you you mentioned uh, geographic demarcation there. Can you uh, describe what what the geographic demarcation of their territories would have been as it relates to the eastern part of the Mediterranean? Sure. So the um, the Sasanians really remained, for the most of their history, along the eastern frontiers of the Roman Empire. So in this case, I, I guess we would call them the Byzantine Empire or the East Roman Empire following the foundation of Constantinople by Constantine. So we're talking about in the fourth century, the Sasanians are already well-established in the region, say, on the upper waters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, down through Mesopotamia to the Persian Gulf. And there is obviously lots of contact between Roman populations and Sasanian populations in terms of trade, we know there's movement of religious ideas and religious groups back and forth across the frontier. And of course, there are also conflicts between the two empires. So for a long time, the Romans had cultivated the idea that they were you know, the great empire, a universal empire. And the Sasanians had cultivated similar pretensions. And it seems that as time wore on, the Sasanians became more and more capable of challenging the Romans 
in this part of the world. And eventually, of course, by the beginning of the seventh century, the Sasanians would in fact uh, shock the Romans and take over most of the Eastern Mediterranean seaboard and threaten the very existence of the empire in a very real way. So it was an astonishing turn of events. It obviously didn't happen overnight, but the, the results of it were seen very, they were felt very acutely in a couple of decades at the beginning of the seventh century. Okay. So how would you describe then that the, uh, the, the, the conquest and the gaining of uh, territory, um, what was the response that uh, the, the Byzantine Empire was um, uh, providing, if anything, at that point in time? What I'm kind of getting at with the question was, was there conflicts along the way or was, was that territory for the most part just not defended? Yeah, so obviously there are there are changes through time. And the so early on in the the existence of the Sasanians, it well, it, it might be profitable to back up just a moment. So the Sasanians overthrew another Iranian dynasty, the Parthian Empire. The Parthians had basically been a uh, had been neighbors of the Romans for a long time, ever since the Romans entered the Eastern Mediterranean in the first century BC, the Parthians had been a presence. And the Romans and Parthians had a long history of fighting back and forth, but for the most part, the Romans had the upper hand. The Romans, it seemed, really kind of at will invaded Mesopotamia, and that is the richest part of the, that's the richest part of this, this portion of the of the empire, of the Persian world. It's the cities of Mesopotamia, the great, obviously, the alluvium, uh, the great uh, farmlands, irrigated farmlands of what is today Iraq. It's the the founding place of urbanism in the world. The greatest ancient cities in the world belong to to Mesopotamia. So it was a vital and rich area, which the Romans seemed to be able to invade with impunity. And it's partly this use of the Parthians as a punching bag, if you will, that led to the rebellion of the governor, uh, the founder of the Sasanians, Ardashir. So he overthrew the Parthians, and then very quickly, the Sasanians um, went on the offensive against the Romans. And this was most notably uh, underscored by the activities of the great king, or the king of kings, Shapur I, who died in 270 AD. Shapur invaded Roman territory and just wrought total havoc along the regions of, of southwest today, southeastern Turkey and central Turkey. He sacked Antioch. He really terrorized the Roman provinces in the east. And I think this was, it wasn't just an expedition to gain plunder and all those things. It was also a way the Sasanians could serve notice, if you will, to the Romans, that we are equals. We are ready for you, and we are ready to ideologically challenge you as equals in the world. And the Sasanians uh, had that confidence. They had this aura about them that they were willing to go toe-to-toe and, and constantly are reminding the Romans that they are equals in this uh, claimed empire. So it's um, there are periods where the empires are at peace with each other. In fact, even very cooperative. So we know in the fourth century, things quiet down so that by the fifth century, the Romans and Persians are actually essentially in a military um, mutual aid situation. The Huns, which are threatening both empires, the Huns are um, a mutual enemy, and the Romans and Persians understand this, and the Romans are giving the Persians money to fortify strategic points along the Caucasus, for example, where the Huns enter both empires. So they recognize that they, at some point, they're kind of grudging with one another to say, yes, we're both uh, equals. You know, We both have this claim to universal empire, but at a minimum, we are brothers, right, who can 
disagree. At the uh, height of their um, hegemony in this region, if you were to use uh, common day ter terminology, um, like the, the Anatolian Peninsula, and not to say some of this terminology didn't exist before, but to, to ha make sure that everybody, including myself, can kind of visualize it on a, on a map. Did they have territories in the Anatolian Peninsula, the, the Levant, the Levant, uh, Egypt? Can you, can you describe in that kind of eastern area at the, at the yeah. apex what their hegemony would have been? Yeah, so this is their, their territorial control of the Levant and Egypt and what is today all of Turkey really was short-lived. So at the beginning of the 7th century, there is a political crisis in the Roman Empire. It begins with a revolution that uh, dethrones the emperor. And the Sasanians take advantage of this political crisis to begin a war. And there had not been a war really between these two powers for, for a number of years. So the Sasanians, uh, you ask about the, the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. The eastern frontier, because of the threat from the Sasanians and because of the experience the Romans had in facing them, they had really developed a very sophisticated, a very expensive, very heavily defended frontier system. It was really a system of fortresses, of watchtowers, of fortified cities, very deep. It was in a line from, you'd think of the Black Sea, basically to the Red Sea. And the most heavily defended part of this was in the region of Eastern Turkey, uh, fronting Armenia. And Armenia was always a bone of contention between the two empires. The Romans wanted Armenia because from the Armenian highlands, you can dominate Mesopotamia or threaten an invasion of Mesopotamia. And of course, the Persians, for their part, that was the reason it was unacceptable for the Romans to be in Armenia. Speaking of cooperation, in the 5th century, they, the Romans and, our, and Persians agreed they basically to partition Armenia to end what they saw as this source of endless warfare. So the, the Roman uh, defenses of the East were overrun very quickly at the beginning of the 7th century. And the Sasanians advanced all the way through Turkey. Uh, there's a famous battle at Antioch in Syria in the summer of 613, where the new emperor nearly loses his life. He escapes uh, barely. And the Persian forces simply roll through the whole of the Levant. They take uh, Jerusalem the next summer, and that means the capture of the true cross on which Jesus was said to have been crucified and they carry the, the true cross back to their capital. And then very quickly thereafter, by 616 or so, they've conquered Egypt, controlling Egypt all the way up to the first cataract. So Rome has completely collapsed. The Sasanians have taken over the whole of the, of the Roman East by the middle of the second decade of the seventh century. Um, interestingly, their fall will be almost uh, equally abrupt so it's an astonishing story. Okay, and we'll certainly um, cover that as well in this episode because it uh, re relates to the um, to, to the episode topic. So, in that period of time, how many how many years would you estimate, or if it's known, Michael, that they did have hegemony in in those areas that you described in the Eastern Mediterranean? And can you speak about in that period of time how they governed those uh, territories? Right. So we know that the, so for example, I, I said that they, in, the Sasanians invade Egypt. So they basically are in Egypt by the end of the, of the second decade of the, of the seventh century. So by 618, let's say they, we know they're in the whole of the Levant. They have Palestine and Egypt under their control. We have some documentation that indicates that in many ways they continue uh, business as usual. There are There is evidence in Egypt, for example, of the imposition of new taxes 
on the Roman population by Persian officials. There are Persian officials resident there who are conducting the bureaucratic uh, governance of, of the land. And of course, Egypt being the richest province in the Eastern Roman Empire, this is a windfall for the Sasanians. It's a huge amount of money that they are able to take in and that the Romans are consequently deprived of. So we, we know that business seems to be going along pretty much as usual. Uh, there's a shipwreck from the, dating from this period of the Persian occupation of Egypt, found at Yasiada in uh, off the coast of southern Turkey, which is showing that a, it's a probably a church-sponsored cargo is on this ship, and it's traveling probably to Constantinople as it would at any other time. So it seems that there is a great deal of continuity. Clearly, there are uh, upheavals within the population as well. We know that there are large numbers of refugees on the move. There are uh, considerable movements of people obviously fleeing the Persians and they're trying to escape first from Syria and then from Palestine and then ultimately they end up in Egypt where the, where the Persians are quick to follow them. We also know that the Sasanians are very clever about how they deal with these conquered territories. One of the strategies that the Persians seem to employ is they bring in uh, colonists. So we know this from a, a few scraps of information that there are Persians settled in various places inside former Roman territory. One of the ways we know this is that in Lebanon, for example, at Baalbek, there was a Persian population living there when the armies of Islam come, not many decades later. So there had been Persian emigres or Persian colonists brought into Roman territory. We also know that the great king, the, the Shahan Shah, as he is called, would favor different sects of Christianity depending on what the, the depending, depending on the composition of the local population. So there are various competing Christian groups. And as it seems as a way to keep the um, conquered population off balance, the Sasanians would impose various officials from different, different Christian sects there. That would actually create some confusion within the, the dominant classes within these cities. So um, they seem to operate very much as a divide and conquer type, with a divide and conquer type strategy. And it's, that's what is so different about the 7th century compared to the Persian Roman wars of the previous years. Persians would come in the 6th century, in the 5th century, they would come, they would extort money, they would sack a city, they would take captives and leave. But in the 7th century, there was a major shift and the Persians decide they're going to stay. They're going to take the territory and they make explicit claims now, again, this is through, we know this through Roman sources, so it's not clear whether the Sasanians themselves actually say this. Certainly the Romans argue that they say this, these things, that we are restoring the Achaemenid Empire. This is our territory. It's the territory of our ancestors, and we've come to take it back, and we intend to do that. Again, there are debates about whether those sorts of things were said by the Sasanians or whether these are things that Romans are looking back on their history books and saying, ah, this is, this is the return of the, of the wicked barbarians of the East. So in that seventh century, then, when they're starting to um, stabilize more their hegemony in that area, um, what was their policy then towards Romans that chose to stay. I'm I'm sure not everybody um, fled. So if if there were people or or families that wanted to wanted to stay and and uh, and and were not uh, in conflict physically, so they weren't uh, they weren't fighting the the Sasanians. Is anything known about the the policies towards them and what life would have been like for those Romans that decided to stay? Yeah, I think we know a little bit. It's certainly there were families, of course, who fled to other territories within the empire. We know that uh, 
people flee to Constantinople, for example. Uh, certainly, most people didn't have that luxury. They would not have had the ability to pick up and leave their homes. They would have been, you know, most most people would have been of very modest means. And so the ability to pick up and leave really just didn't was not an option for them. So for you know the 99% people that made up the working uh, classes and the the farming communities of places like Egypt and Syria, they wouldn't have noticed much difference. You know, the tax collector would have changed, uh, but there was not a tremendous difference in their daily lives between Roman and Persian rule. Now, they might have noticed the influx of, of different sects of Christians that they may not have appreciated. We don't really have much information about how those communities interacted with each other during the during the years of Persian rule. We do know that the within Roman territory, at least the majority of sources claim that the Jewish communities inside Roman territories very much welcomed the arrival of the Persians. The Persians represented to them, and again, this is partly due to you know, stories of the Bible, uh, as well as the lived experience of many Jewish groups, the Persians represented to them a hopeful counterbalance to what they experienced as a very persecuting, oppressive regime. So the Romans were uh, sporadically engaged in forced conversion of Jewish communities or other forms of discrimination that really made life difficult for Jewish communities. And certainly Christian majority was favored in many ways over the uh, Jewish communities in places like Palestine and Egypt, even though they were very large communities. So we have the sense that there was in fact a, a favorable reaction and a, probably a better living situation for the Jewish groups within the Roman Empire under Persian rule. How many years approximately then um, would they have had hegemony in some of these areas that we're talking about in the Eastern Mediterranean? And out of the out of the, the, the those approximate number of of years, um, what how often were they in noted uh, wars or battles? Um, ones that are well documented with with the Romans. Part of why I'm asking that question is I. I, I just covered with Dr. David Potter, uh, Constantine's reign. And um, part of that conversation was Constantine's um, going to war with the Sasanians at one point um, in his during his reign. But what also came through in the conversation with Dr. Potter was the amount of time that Rome and the Sasanians also weren't at war and that there, there were uh, uh, not only relations um, but also diplomatic relations between the uh, two groups. Yeah, there was actually meant there are many years when the two empires were at peace with one another. And I mentioned earlier in the session, the, the surprising level of cooperation at times that the, the Romans subsidized Persian building of defenses, for example, in the northern parts of the Persian empire. So they could cooperate at times, and certainly there there were um, there was considerable trade throughout both empires with one another. Uh, so really, the the time of conflict, the fifth century was a time that was quite quiet. It was really the sixth century when the Sasanians began to engage in this kind of warfare really aimed at extracting resources from the Romans. And in a way, you know, everything is connected with, with what's happening elsewhere. So the Sasanians, in order to understand them, we really need to understand their, what they're facing. They're facing in their lands to the north and east. They face the great steppe lands of Central Asia. And of course, this is the, the land of the nomad barbarian. And these nomadic tribal confederations have tremendous military power. And they come 
in basically in successive waves. And these groups are, they are an existential threat to the Sasanians because once they cross the Oxus River, once they get down into the Iranian plateau, then they can basically run rampant across the whole of Persian territory. And it's not merely in the uh, places like Afghanistan or in what is today Central Asia. The same groups, in fact, cross over the Caspian uh, lands of the Caspian Sea and come down from the Caucasus Mountains into Azerbaijan and these other rich regions of the Sasanian Empire. So for them, these lands are very perilous. This whole frontier means that they have to constantly be on guard against these people from the east. And the Romans, of course, represent a different kind of threat because while the Romans were not aggressive necessarily in the fourth century, the ancestors to the Sasanians, the Parthians, who I mentioned, had in fact been invaded many, many times by Roman armies. So the Sasanians had always to worry about two fronts. And when they begin to invade Rome in the fifth century, it's largely because they felt the Romans had reneged on their agreements to pay money to the Sasanians for upkeep of these defenses that I mentioned. That's the at least the reason given. And it seems that the Sasanian dynasty was using the money sent by the Roman emperors. They were doing partly what they said with it, but for them, propaganda-wise, they were able to use, they could say, look, we are receiving tribute from the Roman emperors. We are dominant over the Romans. They're sending us this money. So even though the Romans had the understanding that they were sending money to the Persians for the defenses of these vulnerable regions that could affect both states very badly, it, internally, the Sasanians were using this as propaganda to show their, their power over the Romans. And so when that, was, that money ended, when the Romans stopped paying, this became a point of war and a way for the Sasanians to extract that money was to invade. And though, again, the purposes of those invasions clearly were not to conquer Roman territory. They were to force the Romans to pay, to pay up, uh, to keep the status quo and which the Romans usually would end up doing. So these weren't the kind of fierce wars of conquest that we see, say, 100 years later. Uh, they're very much a, a kind of border raiding and siege warfare type uh, endeavor on the part of the Sasanians. That seems to change a bit in the 6th century when Justinian and his successors become more aggressive in uh, fighting the Sasanians. And all throughout the sixth century, there are multiple wars that stretch over several decades. But even so, it's still a kind of warfare that is contained to the frontiers. It's not, it's not a warfare that threatens the existence of either empire at that point. They are long, bitter wars, and they're very expensive. But they're not, it's clear that neither side is attempting to you know, strike a blow, a mortal blow to the other in those wars. And that changes only at the beginning of the seventh century. So you mentioned earlier Christian sects. You also mentioned Judaism. So when it came to Zoroastrian, uh, what was their level of uh, interest or practice around proselytizing? Um, were there were there any temples that, that were, were built, etc.? Right. Yeah. So we know that the, the Zoroastrian religion was not really a proselytizing religion. It, it does seem that the, the for the Iranian elite, so for the the uh, bureaucrats and obviously the soldiery and the uh, great families of Persia, it was expected that these these people would be Zoroastrian in religion. And there were a number of of very large uh, fire temples that were built and rebuilt throughout the Sasanian world. It doesn't seem that the Sasanians built these temples necessarily in conquered territory. So the region of Armenia is important because there we have instances when the Zoroastrian, Zoroastrian clergy would lobby the Sasanian kings to impose Zoroastrian worship in places like Armenia and what is today Azerbaijan. 
And that was usually because of the because of alarm at the spread of Christianity among those groups. And it also should be remembered that places like Armenia and Azerbaijan were seen really as part of Iran. And so it seems that the Zoroastrians were concerned about maintaining the majority of Iranians as, as adhering to the Zoroastrian faith rather than say spreading it to other non-Iranian groups. So it, their focus seems to have been maintaining the religion among these people they regarded as Iranian or very closely related to Iranian, you know, the Iranian cultural milieu. When and how does their hegemony in the Eastern Mediterranean end? And is it tied to their uh, empire coming to an end as well? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's a fascinating story. So this is this period has been called by uh, James Howard Johnston of Oxford University, who's written a bit about this time. It's been called the last great war of antiquity, and that terminology has kind of caught on more broadly among historians who study this period because there is this great convulsion that grips the world of these two empires, as I mentioned at the beginning of the seventh century. So the invasion by the Sasanians really beginning in say the year 603 and culminating with the, you know, the sack of Jerusalem in the next decade and the conquest of Egypt, the Sasanians hold on to these territories into the, the 620s. And it's basically the Astonishing, one of the astonishing features of this is how much territory and how many resources the Romans have in fact lost. Basically, the Romans have probably lost three quarters of their tax revenue, much of their manpower, and their most populous cities. So they've lost Antioch, they've lost Alexandria, they've lost the granary of the empire, which is Egypt, and their Persians occupying the territory right across the way from Constantinople in, in Anatolia. Now, the Persian grip on Anatolia does not seem to be terribly tight. And it's not clear what Persian intentions were about Anatolia. And this was, I think, really one of the, the reasons that their conquests were unraveled uh, by the Emperor Heraclius. So the Emperor Heraclius comes to power in 610, and he has a, a very rude start to his reign. He is a son of a very prominent Roman general who had served with distinction during the Persian Wars of the prior generation, uh, who's also named Heraclius. And the younger Heraclius, when he becomes emperor, he leads his army against the Persians at Antioch in 613. And he is the emperor I referred to earlier, who very nearly loses his life and he loses his army. So Heraclius, again, somewhat surprisingly manages to hold on to power, but it's not really until 622, so nearly 10 years later, that he is able to... Uh, mount effective resistance against the Persians. And he does this by striking out through what's today Turkey into Asia Minor, uh, through Asia Minor, and attacking Persia from the north, from the region of Armenia. And uh, through a combination of very skillful military tactics, his, his generalship is, is really quite incredible. Uh, he's able to outmaneuver multiple Persian armies and defeat them in, in turn over the coming years, as well as really being diplomatically quite savvy. Uh, Heraclius is able to not only survive, but to turn the tables and create a great crisis within the Sasanian Empire that leads to the overthrow of the Sasanian Shah, the great king. So... Uh, this is one of the tr really amazing stories of the end of the ancient world, how the Romans were on their last, you know, their last, uh, in their last breaths, if you will. And they come back from what seems like the brink of disaster to turn the tables on a, a people who 
had really been, you know, unbeatable to this point. And it's really quite something to consider how dramatic the turnabout was. So by uh, 620, when 622 begins, Heraclius starts this long offensive campaign against the Persians. Uh, and the Persians suffer a number of defeats and begin to fracture. And so by 628, the war is basically over. The Persians have uh, deposed their king and are beginning to fall into a period of civil war. So the, the Romans come back from the brink of disaster and the Persians very quickly slide into anarchy, which of course facilitates the arrival of, of the Arab armies of Islam who are already you know, forming at this point in time. Okay. How today, so closing, um, actually, before I go there, Michael, so after those events occurred, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because we're starting to enter into probably another topic at this point, but the different territories that you uh, described in the Eastern Mediterranean, so after these events occurred with the Romans, the Romans then, uh, did they uh, claim these territories at that point in time? So the Romans, uh, once they drive the Persians out of Asia Minor, right? once they push them out of what is today uh, Turkey, the, the Persians are still established in Palestine and in Egypt. And it really takes Heraclius some, a, a number of uh, delicate diplomatic maneuvers to persuade the Persian commander, his name is Sharparaz, He's kind of the generalissimo in charge of this army, this conquest army that is still in possession of some of the richest territories of the Roman Near East. And so basically Heraclius maneuvers, he promises Sharparaz they meet in person in Eastern Turkey and Heraclius says, you really ought to be the new Sasanian king of kings. And Sharparaz agrees, he has Roman backing, he has the backing of this powerful army, and so he marches down to the Sasanian capital of Tessaphon and, and becomes king. He only lasts for 40 days. But that's how Heraclius gets the Persians to evacuate the Near East. And he then very slowly, of course, has to reestablish order in these provinces. And this is occurring at the time when Arab raids are beginning and it's important to say, yes, the Persians were only in the territory of what had been the Roman Near East from, you know, say 615, 614, and onward into the 620s. So by now, 628. So the war began in 603. By 628, the, the Persians have finally evacuated what had been the Roman East. But consider that the average person's lifespan was about 40 years. There's an entire generation of people that grew up in Jerusalem, in Alexandria, throughout Syria, which had been you know, bastions of Roman wealth and Roman political power. These people had never experienced Roman rule. And almost immediately after the Persians depart, you have the arrival of these new outsiders, these Arab tribesmen, who have, it seems, a different form of monotheist religion that they are practicing. And so there's no real strong ties between the locals at that point and the imperial powers in Constantinople. And I think this can't be stressed enough. This is one of the reasons why the Arab conquests are so successful, because these people did not, they had no experience of Roman rule at this point, or very little. Closing question, Michael, how do you believe that their their time in the Eastern Mediterranean, their their influences in, in that in that region, how, how would you say either uh, affected history or you could take it a different way, if you'd like, and say how it lives on today, those the, that time in the, the basin and influences? A Persian influence within, say, the broader culture of the Mediterranean is, is difficult to discern. And certainly, you know, there are, there were ideas that flowed from, from Persia to Rome and, and vice versa. We know that. So I think architecturally, there were things like 
um, forms of Persian architecture, geometric designs, the use of uh, certain intricate patterns that you can see really spreading from uh, Persia to places like Egypt. And you see this in textiles. You can also detect it to a degree in architectural forms with the way that certain uh, domes are constructed in, in Roman territory. It's probably influenced by Persian traditions. It's really difficult to pinpoint how these things get to the Mediterranean from the Persians. You know, we don't see, for example, Andrew, large communities that we know of of Persians, you know, living within within the Roman Empire. We don't don't hear of stories of these kinds of of groups. As I mentioned, though, we do know that there are exchanges of ideas. We know that the Persian kings sponsor translations of Greek texts into Pahlavi. It, I don't know of any instances where there are translations of Pahlavi texts into, say, Greek or Latin, uh, but we, we know that there are uh, stories spreading from India beyond the Sasanian Empire to the Eastern Roman Empire of Byzantium. So it, it's frustrating that we know so little about these kinds of cultural exchanges and the role of Sasanian ideas within the broader Mediterranean. Certainly with four and a half centuries of living side by side in these two great empires, the two most powerful empires in, Eur in Eurasia, there are bound to have been many uh, influences upon each other that we uh, would like to be, to be able to see. But at the moment, we can't say much about it, unfortunately. You have a lot of knowledge on this topic and related ones in this region and period of time in history, Michael, and it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Good to be with you. So again, everybody, Dr. Decker has a forthcoming book that's very germane to the conversation that we just had today. It's coming out this year. It's entitled The Sasanian Empire at War, Persia, Rome, and the Rise of Islam. 224 to 651. And the other one that I mentioned that is available is The Byzantine Art of War. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Michael and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.